Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Thursday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, state lawmakers are back in the Gold Dome for a special legislative session. Well, they're redrawing the state's political district lines. ACLU of Georgia Policy Director Christopher Bruce has some concerns, and we'll talk about that when he joins me in a moment. Also, the United Nations Climate Change Conference is underway in Glasgow. Now, President Joe Biden told fellow nations earlier in the week what the United States would vow to do. That's why today I'm releasing the U.S. long-term strategy, which presents a vision of achieving the United States' goal of net zero emissions economy-wide by no later than 2050, and reinforces an absolutely critical nature of taking bold action in the decisive decade. I'll speak with British Council General for the Southeast, Andrew Staunton, as he shares his thoughts on the U.N.'s global approach and remembering our beloved Hank Aaron as the Atlanta Braves get ready to be celebrated as world champs. I'll speak with his daughter, Cece, later in the program. All those conversations are coming up, but first we'll begin with this. The head of Atlanta's Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says COVID-19 vaccines for kids are on the way to clinics and doctor's offices across the U.S. Dr. Rochelle Walensky gave final approval to Pfizer's vaccine for 5- to 11-year-olds earlier this week. The risk of severe COVID remains too high and too devastating, and vaccination, along with other important preventive measures, can protect our children. Walensky says some 28 million children are now eligible for the vaccine. State public health leaders say they hope to have the shots available to kids in that age group in the coming days. Speaking of the vaccine, George Governor Brian Kemp continues to push back on the Biden administration's COVID-19 vaccine mandates. He's joined with Georgia officials and other states in a lawsuit looking to block one of the vaccine requirements. The suit, filed in federal court last week, takes aim at the Biden administration's mandate that U.S. government contractors get vaccinated by December 8th. Kemp says it could affect thousands in the state. Georgians have stepped up to the plate and have been part of the solution in getting past the worst of this virus. They didn't do that because of any government mandate. Georgia has consistently had one of the lowest vaccination rates in the country. Just 50 percent of the residents are fully vaccinated. Biden administration officials have said the December 8th deadline is not a cliff and contractors will have some flexibility on how they enforce the mandate. And a major development within the Fulton County Elections Department, Director Richard Barron, who's been a guest on this program so many times, is resigning from his post at the end of the year. Barron came under intense scrutiny following the 2020 election cycle. Fulton County Commission Chair Rob Pitts praised Barron's eight-year tenure with the county. And he says, look, the events of the past year likely factored into Barron's decision to leave. To be under that kind of pressure, that kind of scrutiny for that long, I will wear on anybody. When you have the former president of the United States and his minions, secretary of state and his minions daily blasting you, it takes a toll on you after a while. 
Earlier this year, the Board of Elections voted to fire Barron, but the dismissal was upheld by the county commission. This announcement comes one day after municipal elections that saw no major issues or lines at polling places. Speaking of state lawmakers and everything else, they're meeting at the state capitol to redraw Georgia's legislative and congressional lines based on that 2020 census data. Raul Bally tells us that diversifying the face of Georgia is playing a key role. Republican House Speaker David Ralston says even though his party holds the majority, it still faces challenges. I think it's no secret that uh, Republicans are stronger in rural Georgia than perhaps they are in uh, metro areas. And so that's where much of the population loss has occurred. That means that, you know, some of our Republican colleagues may end up getting left behind, and that's a tough part of this thing. Democratic State Representative Terry Anulowitz of Smyrna says those population shifts are an opportunity for Democrats in places like Cobb County. Looking at these maps, I see opportunities for two district pickups, one sort of in between East Cobb and Smyrna, the Cumberland area, and one of up north near Kennesaw. And Five years ago, if you had told me that we were going to be talking about a Democratic pickup in a new district in the Kennesaw area, I would probably not have believed you. Despite population gains in Democratic areas, Republicans control the legislature and are likely to draw maps in the coming weeks to keep their party in power for the next few years. Raul Bally, WABE News. And if you see a lot of kids tomorrow playing kickball, I'm assuming kids still play kickball, that's what I did, or basketball. Well, don't worry, do not call their parents or authorities because for many, not all, but some Metro Atlanta school districts, school is canceled. No classes because of the Braves. So kids and teachers can help the Braves celebrate their World Series victory. So far, at the time of this broadcast, Cobb, Fulton, DeKalb, and Clayton Counties and Marietta City and Atlanta Public Schools have all announced this Friday will be a school holiday. Yay, they all said. Atlanta officials say they'll also hold a parade to honor the Braves that day. It will start in downtown Atlanta and head up to Cop- head up to Cobb County to the Braves Stadium at Truist Park. And finally, at this time, there's a public visitation underway for Atlanta news anchor Joe Vita Moore. Moore died last Thursday. She was 54 years old. Seven months prior, the longtime WSB-TV journalist was diagnosed with an aggressive type of brain cancer. The visitation is open until 8 p.m. tonight at Gregory B. Levitt and Sons Funeral Home in Crematory in Decatur. A private funeral for family members will be held Friday. Jovita Moore, a gold standard for our industry, always out in the community, and a beloved fellow journalist. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. A landscape unlike any other, Georgia's coast is home to vital communities and people from all walks of life fighting to protect it. Help keep Georgia's coast flowing at ourgeorgiacoast.org. And Closer Look continues now. I'm Rose Scott. Some months prior to the release of the 2020 census data, a state Senate committee went on a public comment tour throughout Georgia to get feedback um, regarding the redrawing of district lines. Sit back. Here's some of what they heard. Our Senate district 
splits Gordon County. I feel like this diminishes our role. Uh, I, you know, we, we have a, not love our neighbors in Floyd County, but we have a lot more in common with our Whitfield County neighbors, the flooring industry, agricultural uh, developments, things of that nature, would make us pair better with them as a whole county and give our whole county more representation if we were partnered with them as a whole other than split in half. The black voting age population has grown by about 15%. The Asian voting age population has grown by about 25%. The Hispanic voting age population has grown by about 23%. And the white voting age population has decreased by about 2%. And we believe these demographic changes must result in maps that adequately reflect the diversity of the greater Dalton area. The maps that are drawn this year need to take that diversity into account and ensure that voters of color have the same opportunity to elect candidates of their choice as white voters do. How is this committee going to have a hearing in Dalton and not have a translator on site, nor provide information in languages other than English? Nosotros merecemos ser parte del proceso. Sean justos y no dibujen sus, sus mapas para dibujar sus votos. Enséñenos que nosotros podremos confiar en ustedes. If you were not able to understand what I just said, this is the reason why we need language access, because my community heard me, and now you know how excluded they feel. Forsyth County for a very long time has been disenfranchised as a county, and that may seem odd because everybody looks at Forsyth County as, a, as a, a, a place that is wealthy, a place that is successful, a place that has good schools and, and a good community. But what we do lack is actual representation at the state and the federal level. Now, as it is drawn right now, my, my district, Senate District 55, is split between parts of DeKalb County and parts of Gwinnett County. Now, as a citizen of Gwinnett, I'd hate that because it makes it exceptionally harder for our state senator to advocate for solutions to problems specific to our community in Gwinnett, such as the 9.2% of us who currently live below the poverty level. And having a split district makes it hard on us as community members and leaders to effectively lobby our legislators on behalf of our community and Gwinnett citizens. Comments there from the public regarding redrawing both congressional and state legislative district lines. State lawmakers are now in a special session because that's what they're tasked to do. Joining me now is Christopher Bruce, policy director for the ACU of Georgia, to discuss all of this. Director Bruce, thanks for taking the time. Always a pleasure to be here, Rose. Thank you. Let's begin with your takeaway from what you heard during all those public comments. We were just able to grab a few, but there were a lot more. Tell me what you heard. Oh, well, thank you for that. And what I heard were people being very concerned about the issues that are going on with Georgia and how the lines are going to be redrawn. <clears throat> I want to say up front that the ACLU of Georgia had a staff member or a member of the organization mm -hmm. at every one of those hearings across the state. And we talked to the people there and they're very concerned in districts like Athens, Clark County, who have a split representation very concerned in areas such as the AUC who has split representation. Everywhere people are concerned about are their voices being heard in the state. And if you look at the polling data and messaging, it's not. If you look at people who are demanding health care for across the state, has that actually been passed or addressed at the Georgia General Assembly? These are the type of issues that real Georgians are going to care about. And we're not going to have this shot again for another 10 years. 
So the Georgia General Assembly needs to get it right, and they need to get it right right now. We heard folks talk about, listen, that the maps need to adequately adequately reflect the population, the people of that district. You heard some folks talk about the changing demographics of certain counties. Uh, Through your lens, then what are you hoping that the state lawmakers will actually look at that and and use the census data because that's what they're supposed to do? Yeah, let's acknowledge that up front. Georgia is one of the most diverse states in the nation. So knowing that and looking at the census data, this isn't misinformation. These are facts and policies that we put in place. Georgia has grown by more than 1 million people. And most of that growth have been people of color. So these are the type of voices that need to be reflected down at the Capitol. You heard Speaker Ralston talking about rural areas and losing their population growth. But what you heard from him was mostly talking about Republicans uh, losing representation. I think you really need to focus on the people there, okay? Let's stop playing, uh, talking about the parties and start talking about the people and what they actually need. So if it is an agricultural community, making sure that their voices are being uh, held up. If you are lacking broadband in anywhere in rural or in um, urban Georgia, that needs to be addressed as well. So these are the type of issues, again, that the Georgia General Assembly needs to take up so that people in their areas can elect their elected officials and not elected officials picking uh, their own population. And we should note that state lawmakers have to also be mindful, if they're not reminded, that also there's, look, there are some constitutional guarantees here. There are some, there are some laws here that you cannot break, not saying they would do that. But many folks are concerned about whether or not the Voting Rights Act and, and you know, other measures within our within the laws here will be followed. You all have some concerns as it relates to the Voting Rights Act and, and all of this. This plays a major part. Oh, absolutely. And when it comes down to it, the Voting Rights Act is up and it's still in force. But certain things such as Shelby v. Holder, the decision that happened in 2013, which took away the Department of Justice oversight Mm -hmm. in this area, means now that we cannot actually have other people, the federal government, looking at these maps and saying, are black people being disenfranchised? And that's a serious concern that we have in the state of Georgia because Georgia has a history of disenfranchising people of color. In other words, that pre-clearance mandate that is no longer. Well, then someone listening says, well, Director Bruce, what can you all of the ACLU of Georgia do? How can you all make sure that that they that the redrawing of these lines are, are fair and that they are in clear representation? Well, we're looking at the maps like every other group and organization. It's just not the ACLU of Georgia. So we're working with a great coalition of people who care about the community and the state. Uh, When it comes down to it, looking at the data of the maps first, and this is dealing with redistricting or anything else, Mm -hmm. your state representatives and your state senators should be very transparent with you. They should be telling you upfront how this process is going to go. They've had these maps for a while, and now they're introducing it literally a day or two before they're actually having these sessions. That's not acceptable. They should have actually had more time for the public to um, play a role into these type of maps. And then looking at the numbers that happen in these certain areas. For example, we're crunching numbers of saying Senate District 17, which is in Southern Henry County. Mm -hmm. Now, Biden won this by 50 plus percent, 50.1% of the total vote in 2020. And under the new maps that have been proposed, Trump would have won this by 59 
0.5% of the vote. So redrawing these lines literally uh, dictates how elections will go in the future going forward on a local level as well as statewide politics. That was my next question. Are there some other specific districts that you all are concerned about or, or want to make sure that there's going to be some fairness involved here? Uh, when these maps first came out, folks talked about the 6th Congressional District. Uh, obviously, that's held by Democrat Lucy McBath there. But also, looking at fellow Congresswoman Carolyn Bordeaux, her map, her district didn't wouldn't fairly wouldn't basically be affected, but definitely uh, Congresswoman McBath here. Yes, so we know that in redistricting, we're redrawing the state house, the state senate, and our U.S. congressional districts. So this is very concerning about the way that the seventh district, with Carolyn Bordeaux, has been drawn, and it's also the sixth district well, with Lucy McBath. This is, again, about are you actually drawing lines to represent the people to reflect that in the United States Congress? And as you know, Congress is in a razor thin type of power hold between Democrats and Republicans. Places like Georgia play a pivotal role in how uh, our federal government is going to play. And redrawing congressional districts is going to be one of those type of issues. Again, the minority population in the state of Georgia has exploded. And that doesn't mean that it just has to be electing minorities all the time. Sure. But it means that we have to elect people who reflect the interests of their communities. What role will you all then be doing during this time? Are you all down there hanging at, out, hanging out there at the Gold Dome and <laughs> showing your face? <laughs> well, as you know, uh, the ACLU of Georgia has always had a presence down and under the Gold Dome. Yes. Uh, so we are not only going to these hearings across the state, we've done that, and educating people. And in these areas, telling them, hey, this is the population growth that you've had in your area. These are the areas that you can do the issues that may happen. Are your roads being uh, paved? Uh, do you have access to a hospital? Uh, the other things, again, about broadband. So going out into the community, but also inviting the community down to the Capitol. At one o'clock, the Senate redistricting committee uh, went into session mm -hmm. to talk about these maps. We need to hear from the public of saying, you can determine how your uh, community is going to be drawn. They need to hear from you uh, at this point in time, because the only way to hold them accountable is if they hear and see from you. The, I think last time we spoke, I don't think I introduced you as policy director for the ACLU of Georgia. I think you had another title. Is that correct? Right. It was political director. And that's where it goes along with all this. Mm -hmm. uh, the po politics within the past few years has been way too much. Let's just stick to the policy. Let's take away the politics and stick to the policy and mostly stick to the people. So I wanted that to reflect in, um, <laughs> in, my, in my title as well. Well, before I let you go, I do want to get your thoughts on it. We just had, a, obviously, an election Tuesday here. We've had some shakeups here in the Fulton County. Uh, Director Richard Barron resigning. To, well, he will be resigning uh, at the end of this year. And then also we got to have a runoff coming. Uh, concerns you all have as it relates to what has transpired since Georgia's new voting law? I know that that's sort of in your wheelhouse, but uh, just your, your thoughts. Oh, it's absolutely in our wheelhouse. And first off, everyone who came out and vote, remember, if you voted in the municipal election in Atlanta, there are several runoffs. And there are runoffs across the state as well. So check uh, your My Voter page to look and see if you do have a runoff so you can elect uh, the right people. Did you all have Voting any issues from folks? Did you all have any folks, uh, to your knowledge, calling or saying, hey, I had some issues on Tuesday? Uh, there were issues that popped up uh, in certain places, uh, paper ballots being used and other things. I believe in Cobb County, eight 
areas um, actually had to be extended for at least half an hour mm-hmm. because it didn't open on time. I mean, it's not going to be a flawless system, sure. but there's a point of saying, can we have accessible voting for you to exercise your constitutional second right to vote? Christopher Bruce is the policy director for the ACLU of Georgia. We've been talking about the redistricting right now. State lawmakers down at the dome redrawing both congressional and state legislative district line. Now, here's the thing that people need to understand. They may not get this done during this session. There is a possibility. Folks need to understand that, right? They're supposed to, but they may not. They're supposed to. And also, it may not just be redistricting. Uh, There are rumors that they may have hearings about uh, the city of Buckhead, the proposed city of Buckhead. But doesn't, uh, but okay, but doesn't that have to align with the proclamation that the governor issued? I mean, they have to; those issues, those topics, have to be that they want to take up. Don't they have to be somehow involved with the, the actual proclamation? Am I wrong? Oh no, you're absolutely right, and Just this checking. again goes along. <laughs> this again goes along with how we deal with our elected officials. Let me read for you a piece of the proclamation, proclamation part number three. Sure. Uh, For enacting, revising, repealing, or amending local laws, which the Georgia General Assembly deems necessary to avoid unreasonable hardship or to avoid undue impairment of public functions if consideration and enactment thereof are postponed. That's a little, uh, (laughs) I'll let you take it. No, yeah, well, I think we're about to say the same thing. What does that mean? Like, what? That is such an ambiguous and vague statement that literally anything could come under that. Um, Crime could come under that. Housing could come under that. Uh, So, anything for enacting, revising, and repealing local laws in the General Assembly, you they can redraw your commission lines of what commissioner you have or anything else. So, those are the type of things we're saying. At least tell us what you're going to do. I mean, if you're going to do it, do it. But at least let us know up front so we can actually have our voices heard. That's how democracy works. Christopher Bruce, policy director for the ACLU of Georgia. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for continuing to educate the people, Rose. So we're here for. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> And Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. This week and next week, world leaders and representatives from across the globe will continue to meet in Glasgow, Scotland. They're attending the COP26 summit. It's a global conference, you all know, led by the U.K. to talk about climate change and how nations across the world can work together, yes, to make the world greener, cleaner and safer for generations to come. That's why today I'm releasing the U.S. long-term strategy which presents a vision of achieving the United States' goal of net zero emissions economy-wide by no later than 2050, and reinforces an absolutely critical nature of taking bold action in the decisive decade. That is from, of course, U.S. President Joe Biden's speech earlier this week at the summit. President Biden further explained how the U.S. is working with other nations to combat climate change. Today, I'm also submitting a new adaptation communication, laying out how we'll implement the global goal of adaptation, as well as announcing our first ever contribution to the adaptation fund. But our commitment is about more than just financing. That's a critical piece of it. We're also going to support solutions across the board, 
In the lead-up to this gathering, the United States joined our G7 partners to launch a Build Back Better World initiative. We also reconvened the major economies forum on energy and climate to launch transformative actions and to raise ambition. And together with the European Union, we're launching a global methane pledge to collectively reduce methane emissions, one of the most potent greenhouse gases, by at least 30 percent by the end of the decade. More than 70 countries have already signed up to support rapid reduction of methane pollution, and I encourage every nation to sign on. It's, it's the simple, most effective strategy we have to slow global warming in the near term. Well, joining me now to talk more about COP26 is British Council General Andrew Staunton. Council General Staunton, welcome back to the program. Thanks so much. It's been, been some time. It's been some time, Rose. It's a real pleasure to be here speaking to you again. No, no better, more important week. Absolutely. Let's begin here because I imagine you agree that it is imperative for all these nations to come together and, and agree on some type of comprehensive goal, some global plan to address climate change. Because if it doesn't happen now, folks say, well, we'll never get there. Yes, Rose, obviously, just picking up on the points that you aired there from President Biden, it's wonderful to have the U.S. back playing an international leadership role. My Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, has been working effectively and hard over the last two years to prepare the ground with the United Nations Secretary General for this to be a moment, the moment of decisive action, where those countries do come together and help us uh, try to address some of these global challenges. Well, with all these heads of states and and government officials and diplomats and and everyone at the conference now, and we know the goal is to set these new targets, targets for cutting emissions and, you know, from burning coal, oil and gas, of course, which are all directly tied to the planet's overall increasing temperature. But we just heard in the NPR newscast earlier, but now comes a report that the burden of fighting climate change for some nations that are strapped when it comes to funding and especially when the biggest emitters of carbon dioxide are not them, as they would say. You look at China, the U.S., India, the Russian Federation, and Japan. What's your thoughts on that? Well, Rose, we're all in this together. I think that's the clear message that we first heard in Paris five years ago or six years ago. And Paris set a lot of these targets, a lot of these standards. Glasgow is about delivery. Glasgow is about implementation. So on the particular issue of finance, uh, we've been working hard to try and achieve a commitment that there will be $100 billion available to developing countries per year until 2050 to actually help them take the measures that uh, some of our developed nations have already been able to, to put into practice. It's a fair criticism that many of the G7 nations have had that first mover advantage. Now we need to level the playing field and to bring others with us. And in considering that we're also still in this pandemic and for nations that are still just trying to deal with that. And for some, they're still just trying to get the vaccine to the majority of their people. So hearing this, that there could be some funding that you all you all are part of in making sure that these smaller nations can then, as you just said, since we're all in this together, that they can be a, a they can participate in helping these target goals when it comes to climate change. Uh, I want to get your thoughts on this because your your British Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, tweeted earlier yeah. in weeks, governments can mobilize billions to fight climate change, but the private sector can mobilize trillions. And today's commitment at the conference will deploy $130 trillion to build the global green economy of the future. So the private sector, how do you how do you see that? Because it's, um, listen, we all know that public-private partnerships are wonderful, 
but there are partnerships that their goal is not necessarily to they may not want to be a part of this how do you how do you propose getting everyone on board these private and part public and private partnerships to work together i think rose actually many of the private sector companies are now on board and increasingly coming on board if you think back five years ago the whole sort of sustainability objectives of the big companies was almost like an afterthought in their annual reports now this has been mainstreamed that's because their customers expect it. So in the United States, in the Southeast, around Atlanta, you've already got uh, utilities such as Georgia Power, the Southern Company, actually looking to the future and investing in the technology that's required now to do things like phase out coal, to increase the use of natural gas, and to really start making strides at this moment so that they're changing the structure of the economy. But I think on the, the climate finance, that more than $100 trillion uh, that you talk about, obviously governments can make investments, but with the private sector backing that up. For example, London as a financial centre, we have an objective to turn London into the green financial centre of the world so that international finance flows through London so that projects, no matter where they are in the world, have that opportunity to have sustainability at their core and so that we're actually helping people. Because for us, you mentioned the pandemic, mm -hmm. but for us, this is the time to ensure that the recovery that we all want is a green recovery. Because in 2050, if we're only thinking about action at that time, we won't meet our targets and the planet will be in a very bad way. Well, are you optimistic then that the oil and gas industries, that they'll be on board as well? There was a report recently that they maybe they maybe they just weren't so honest and transparent in the past, which I don't know why that should have been a shock to some folks, but apparently was. I, I didn't read that report that you're mentioning, Rose, but I think that, uh, uh, for example, uh, BP, uh, my colleague in Houston, is in regular contact with them. Mm -hmm. And he tells me all of the time that BP are at the forefront of looking to develop new energy, renewable energy sources, technology that's supports a move away from fossil fuels because they see the direction of travel. They see that this is in their bottom line interest. But I think more and more people are coming around to this sense of we need to have stewardship of our planet. People expect it. I hosted an environmental justice seminar in, mm -hmm. in Atlanta recently, and there was a, green, a real groundswell that uh, communities across Atlanta were very interested in how do we make this climate change real and effective for everyone? That's a good point. We've had many conversations about not only environmental justice, but as it relates to you know race and, and class and ethnicity mm. and all that. If you're just joining us, I'm joined by British Council General Andrew Staunton, and we're talking about the COP26, a global conference that focuses on combating climate change. Now, Council General Staunton, a moment ago when we talked about Prime Minister Boris Johnson, but at this moment there is some controversy regarding the coal mine. Now, I'm going to play a clip from you. This is from Monday when a BBC reporter confronted uh, Prime Minister Johnson about this new coal mine, the first, I think, in decades for the UK. Take a listen. We started the Industrial Revolution. We should have closed the I've just the given you the statistics before you have ah, a, But why don't you, you just a, say, yeah. we're going to... We're not going to open them. I've just given you the statistics. Why don't we There's, be clear on we, the coal mine? We have, we have the Chinese will say, 80%. we can't take this guy seriously. We, well, I th sorry, the, the, what, they, what absolutely everybody finds incontrovertible is the progress the UK has already made. No, I'm sorry to bang on about the no, coal. Sorry. But the point is, you kind of, you know, it makes you look... No, I, I'm, 
I, makes you look a little bit weaselly, not answering the coal question, because they're going to go and you're talking about they, sorry, coal. Okay, uh, uh, sorry, I, I've answered the coal question, and, and they understand that. Directly. And, and let me say, tell you directly. Okay. We are, we are, yes we or are, no on the coal mine? You personally, what do you reckon? I, I'm not in favour of, of more coal, let's be absolutely clear, but it's not a decision for me. It's a decision for local uh, planning authorities, right? Ah, got a little of the BBC reporters. Uh, Council General Staunton, first, let's get some clarity. Do you know? Who, or rather, what governing body actually approves, would approve this coal mine? I'm not looking to prevaricate here. I don't personally know which is the appropriate body. I think my prime minister was clear that uh, his personal view is that the United Kingdom has made lots of progress phasing out coal. In fact, we've got very little coal as part of our energy mix. Uh, We cannot uh, always enforce a government decision that... uh, stands in the way of what local authorities and regulators think is important, uh, particularly if they're investors looking at this. But I'm not really cited on the internal government decision-making processes around that. But I think my Prime Minister set out his view that he is not personally in favour of more coal in the United Kingdom. Which is what he said. But can you understand someone saying, well, listen, we're at this we're at this climate conference, this global you know, climate change conference, and then here y'all come talking about you're going to get a new coal mine. You can understand somebody saying, okay, what's going on here? And I'm not asking you to speak for the whole UK. I know that that's not something that you, you can do, but just you can understand the criticism, though, correct? No, I can certainly understand the criticism. Although, just to re-emphasize, the United Kingdom has successively reduced the coal share in our energy mix. We're looking to, and we're already doing more onshore wind, more offshore wind, we're looking at hydrogen technology. We're looking at carbon capture. So we're looking at new nuclear. So coal is still a very, very small part of the UK's energy mix, and we want to reduce that further. And we've given a commitment, and we've signed the international agreement that 40 mm-hmm. nations have joined today to phase out coal because uh, we want to move away from fossil fuels. We want to see more action on cash or uh, climate finance, Uh, phasing out coal, more moves towards electric vehicles and uh, halting deforestation. So we've got a a broad agenda, uh, Mm -hmm. which isn't just about coal, but we're very, very, very determined to do what we can to phase out coal as quickly as possible. Let's go back to COP26 for a moment. What are you particularly paying attention to in in general, beyond in general? What are you particularly paying attention to? So from, from my perspective, where I sit in the southeast, I've been very active recently, working with state governments, working with companies here, looking at that transition from uh, petrol or gas-fueled cars towards electric vehicles. If you look at the southeast of the United States, you're the automotive capital of the United States, and you're one of the automotive centers of the world. Mm -hmm. So I've been speaking to a lot of people about how do we make that change towards electric vehicles, which will not be straightforward. But if you were looking at uh, the importance of climate through an economic development lens, you really get the sense that uh, this transition for the Southeast is about jobs, growth and competitiveness. It's about the Southeast saying we can be the electric vehicle capital production centre of the United States. Do you have an electric vehicle? I have a hybrid vehicle. It's a Range Rover. So uh, I drive, as you can imagine, across the six states of the Mm -hmm. Southeast, the charging infrastructure wouldn't allow me to get everywhere. But every day as I go to and from the office, I have 30 miles of electric power 
which enables me to get to and from work. I'm fortunate it's a Range Rover. You don't think you can uh, drive through six states just on an electric vehicle alone? I, I think it would be <laughs> problematic in terms of planning, and uh, I don't want to be at the forefront of uh, TV stories about uh, British Consul General marooned on Interstate 20 or Interstate 75. Stranded in the Okefenokee swamps. <laughs> the Okefenokee swamps I know a little bit about. As we wrap up, I do want to get your thoughts on then how you all have been doing. Obviously, we, I mentioned earlier we were still in this pandemic. And then what are mm. you hearing from, you know, your folks here who live in the southeast in terms of how they're doing? Yeah, well, I've been thinking about a lot this a lot recently, Rose, because I managed to return to the United Kingdom to see my children mm -hmm. for the first time in two years uh, last week. So I've been thinking about family and how we are adapting to this. I mean, obviously, in the United Kingdom, we're doing very well in vaccines. You know, we're over 85 percent. Mm -hmm. uh, I just had my booster vaccination today, uh, thanks to a local pharmacy. Uh, so it's possible for people to get vaccines in the state of Georgia if they, if they have the arms that are available. Mm -hmm. I think, though, that we're, we're really in a situation whereby through the use of vaccinations, we're beginning to take a more risk-based approach to how we open up, how we engage. I've also been able to travel a lot. So over the last period, I've been in Savannah, Charlotte, Raleigh, other parts of Georgia. And you're getting a sense that people are more willing to get back to business uh, in a hybrid model. But I think it's important that we realize that people are being prudent and cautious as we look to uh, uh, confront the pandemic that still remains. Absolutely. British Council General to the Southeast, Andrew Staunton, as always, thank you so much for taking the time. We always have a good conversation. Thank you. And uh, I'm really glad that Glasgow, which is my home city, yeah. is at the forefront of the world's things. And just one final thing, go Braves. I'm looking forward to Friday's parade. All right. Thank you for that. Closer Look continues. I'm Rose Scott. A celebration for Atlanta Braves World Series champions. Yes, it's set for tomorrow, this Friday. Apparently, it's going to begin in Atlanta and end in Cobb County. The last time the Braves won the World Series, they still played in Atlanta. And the Braves say the parade will be in two phases, starting noon Friday at the corner of Peachtree and Marietta in downtown Atlanta. And will end the celebration inside Truist Park. The event at the ballpark is free, but tickets are required. And as mentioned earlier, several Metro Atlanta school districts have declared a holiday on Friday because of the anticipated crowds and road closures. And as we all celebrate the World Series champs, it's hard not to think about the most beloved and certainly, certainly the cornerstone of the Braves, Hank Aaron. Hank Aaron died earlier this year on January the 22nd. He was 86 years old. I'm joined now by Cece Aaron, daughter of Billy and Hank Aaron. Cece, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. You know, your father and, and his lasting legacy, uh, we all know and we all love. And he was honored by the Braves before the start of Game 3. 
Um, it, it was a lovely video tribute, and of course, his number was etched out there in the field. What a moment for the Aaron family, and especially your your mother, uh, Miss Billy. How y'all doing? Um, we are hanging in there. Um, my mother is still, of course, grieving, and he's trying to get used to this new normal. Mm-hmm. And um, it's it's been hard missing his. We just miss his presence. He didn't. He wasn't a man of many words. He didn't talk a whole lot, but his presence was always there. He was always sitting in his chair. You know how men have their chairs? Mm -hmm. And so um, that's been hard. You posted on social media underneath an illustration of the Braves players celebrating your dad. Um, With the caption, he may have had a little something to do with it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no, no, you go. <laughs> As that last out was being recorded and the Braves won, the players are jumping up and down and rushing the, the field. What were your thoughts? Um, well, actually, I did not see the game. Um, I'm in Massachusetts, but I've seen replays of it, and I was so excited. And I, I thought about Daddy mm-hmm. because I know he is overjoyed and jubilant just knowing that his team um, won – another championship it's been what 26 years i Mm -hmm. think yeah and so um i'd I'd like to think that maybe he had a little hand (laughs) in it (laughs) did you talk to your mom um have you been what conversation have you had with your mom since the braves have won oh she's excited about it yeah um and but it was hurtful because she she started crying because she just wishes daddy was here but she's thrilled that the braves have won the world series you know, since I want to bring this up, and, and some folks, they may get mad, but who cares? As the Braves, we keep hearing these growing calls for a name change, right? And mm-hmm. one of the proposals brought forward by some fans is to, hon- is to honor your dad, Hank, with the switch to the Atlanta Hammers. What do you make mm-hmm. of that? That's something you'd like to see? Oh, I'd love to see that. Um, but, you know, that's up to Major League Baseball, I would imagine. <laughs> 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 and maybe the Braves organization, but it would it'd be kind of right. cool, the Atlanta Hammers. Oh, I think that would be wonderful, and I think that would be such an honor, you know, an honor of Daddy, Hammer, and Hank. Uh, I had someone email, or actually call me and leave a voicemail, I think it was yesterday, and said, you know, the Braves don't play in Atlanta anymore, Rose, and so, you know, we should they should just have the parade up there in Cobb County. And I said, look, I am not getting into this debate. <laughs> they will always be the Atlanta Braves. I don't care what anybody says. They could play in, in Milton. I don't care. They're going to be the Atlanta Braves. Yeah, the Smyrna Braves just doesn't—the um, Marietta Braves just doesn't have the same ring to it as Atlanta. <laughs> yeah, Cobb County Braves. No, no, no. They're always be the Atlanta no. Braves. <laughs> right. Um, right. What is your? What have you made personally, just of all the outpouring of of love and support and honoring your father, even from January to to now? You personally, what does that mean? I, I, honestly, I never thought of him as being that famous. Um, I was shocked and, and elated because the outpouring has sustained not only myself but my family as well. But I never thought of him as a larger-than-life person. He was just daddy who might fuss at me for not cleaning my room (laughs) or something (laughs) like that. So, um, but to answer your question, it's been such a comfort to see the love and that people 
do remember him, and he hasn't been forgotten. And that's been a comfort to us as a whole. And also here, just the uh, over the years, even after, of course, he's, he stopped playing, um, the philanthropic en- endeavors that y- your parents um, have mm-hmm. been involved with, from civil and human rights, education, small businesses. I mean, if folks don't know um, the, the many businesses your dad owned. Um, right, and, and right. Making, yeah. Um, he, he was very big on education. As a matter of fact, my son played basketball, football, and baseball, and he rarely asked how he was doing in sports. He always wanted to know, um, how he was doing in school. Are you getting your lesson? Get your lesson. You know, old country folks say, get your lesson. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was more concerned about my son I'm just, and my daughter, too, and all of his grandchildren, getting college education. And the Braves had something where, um, I can't remember what it was, but uh, three Morehouse students were, were honored. And if I could send you the video of how elated he was, for just for them getting their education, he was more excited about that than he was about hearing about someone who made a home run. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, Cece, I'm curious because I know that your father, for a long time, he didn't really particularly enjoy talking about um, the Babe Ruth chase, the home run record. You know, I, mm-hmm. I've I've spoken to him a, a couple of times, and you know, because it, it look, it was not a pleasant experience. Right. Um, during that time, and I'm curious, did you did you all ever have any just private conversations about that that you would like to share, and, and what he went through during that time? No, he never. You know, he didn't talk about it in public, and he didn't talk about it at home. Um, I guess because it was very painful. But no, he he never he never spoke about it. You know, he would every once in a while. You know, if it came up, how hard it was, and and what what a race, such a racist society it was back during those times. And times have changed somewhat. Mm-hmm. But he he did say he was just a man going to work and doing his job who happened to have great talent. Um, it's not that he necessarily set out to break his record. It's just that's just what he did. He was a home run hitter. I have a, he wasn't trying to take anything away from Babe Ruth at all. Yeah. I actually have an email from a listener who says, just tell her how much I loved her dad. So I'm telling oh. you, a listener says how much he, he or she loved your dad. Well, thank you, listener. I appreciate that. I, I really, really do. I'm not just saying that. Thank you so much. <laughs> now, a little side note, because your daughter's a sports, is she still a sports broadcaster? Is that true? She she was working for the Dodgers, but now she's living in Korea, and she works for a Korean media company. Wow, I, and I, and, yeah. I, and I know seeing her doing sports. I know Daddy was probably like, "Yeah, that's my baby girl." Right, <laughs> but he, he he was always he would say, um, "Are you safe, baby? Do you need some money, huh? You know, <laughs> what do you need?" Don't so, you love when dads uh, ask if you need money? I missed that from yeah. my dad because I would say <laughs> yes. Well, let me just say, he says that to his grandchildren. He would say that to his grandchildren. <laughs> Cece, as we wrap up, um, if you can, I mean, just what do you think your dad would say to this year's players, the, the Atlanta Braves, or to the city after winning this World Series? I think he would say, job well done. Um, keep it up. Keep your focus on what you need to focus on. And... Um, 
he, he would say to me sometimes, don't fight against yourself. And keep fighting, and congratulations, and keep God first. That's what he would say. Mm, sounds wonderful to me. Cece Aaron, daughter of Billy and Hank Aaron. Cece, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Give our best to your beloved mother as well, Billy, and then we're all always thinking about your father, okay. Mr. Hank Aaron. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Take care now. Okay, bye-bye. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. You can always send me an email, as you all love to do, rose at wabe.org. Now, some of you have taken to calling. I guess that's going to be the new norm. (laughs) But if you call, I may not answer. Anyway, send me an email, rose at wabe.org. But I do check my messages. And if you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. And reminders, some school districts will be closed tomorrow because we're going to celebrate the Braves. Yes, we are. And if you're wondering which school districts, well, I don't know about Milton. But I do know that the Atlanta Public Schools, I have Cobb County, Fulton, DeKalb, Clayton, and the Marietta City Schools will all have a school holiday tomorrow. So kids don't have to get up and catch the bus. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. has changed from shifts in power to a mental health crisis. So with all this social change, how do we balance the human desire for empathy, the business need for productivity, and the hope to make an impact in our community? This is a new podcast, The Social Impact Leader. I'm Jeff Schinnebarker. Join me as we explore people doing work a little different. Available every Wednesday at wabe.org forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. W-A-B-E. Ever wondered where to find the best dumplings in town? Curious about Atlanta's obsession with lemon pepper? Join us on Savory Stories, a new podcast as we uncover the untold tales behind Atlanta's culinary scene. From the roots of your favorite dishes to the creators that bring them to life, we're diving deep into the heart of the city's food culture. Listen to Savory Stories at wabe.org slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E.